holding my chest, my legs and hands, silence, feeling the pressure. What? She was a fraud. A million bloody degrees out there. Oh, wind. I'm sorry if I said anything awful. Blessed lambs of God. Why hadn't he got up to chop the capsicums? I was never a good reader. Ah, Immaculately bland. Anyway, it looks like... What do we do with this now? You're not even supposed to use the word fat. Boys like girls. When we were very young... I was back home in Norwich. Square Sound. You're listening to the audiobook podcast for the makers and listeners of audiobooks. Hi, and welcome to the audiobook podcast. I'm Abby Holmes. And today, Justine Sloan-Lees will be joined in conversation with Luke Arnold, who has spent the last decade acting his way around the world, playing iconic roles such as Long John Silver in Black Sails, and his award-winning turn as Michael Hutchins in the In Excess miniseries Never Tear Us Apart. When he isn't performing, Luke is a screenwriter, director, and for the first time, an audiobook narrator for his debut title, The Last Smile in Sunder City. Brilliantly voiced and recorded at Square Sound Studios under the direction of Justine Sloan-Lees, Luke's contemporary fantasy novel follows Fetch Phillips, who fought on the wrong side of a war between humans and magical creatures, and his actions helped to drain the world of enchantment. Now Fetch works on the streets of Sunder City, taking what odd jobs he can while trying to help those whose lives he ruined. Well, we're excited to have Luke with us today, talking about his experience as an author-narrator. If you haven't already, get yourself a copy. This book does not disappoint. Luke Arnold, it's lovely to have you in the booth with us. Thank you very much for having me. And one of the reasons we wanted to talk to you today was because you've just not long come out of the booth after recording your first audiobook. So we wanted to get your perspective on that experience because we've often talked to experienced narrators, but you're a first timer. How was it? Yeah, I actually enjoyed it a lot more than I thought I would. I was a little bit nervous about it only because I do listen to a lot of audiobooks and I've heard just so many great ones. And knowing that, you know, because this is my book and I want it to do really well and I, you know, I want to sell as many as possible, I didn't want to be the one to stuff up my own audiobook sales, really. There was a bit of back and forth about it, but when I first came in here and we kind of recorded the first chapter as a bit of a demo, I think I realized that I'm so familiar with this world and this character and these words that it kind of happened really easily. I actually then really enjoyed it. I mean, I've said this book out loud to myself a number of times alone, so it was nice to finally share that with someone else. You mentioned the back and forth. Was that between the agent and the publisher? Was that what you mean, the discussion about? Yeah, so it was kind of, yeah, through my agent to the publisher. The original idea was that, like, yeah, we'll get me to do it, and then... I think I was a bit unsure, and even them not having, you know, knowing that I hadn't done an audiobook before, I'm sure, you know, some part of them was a bit like maybe we go with someone we're used to working with, someone we've tested before. So, yeah, it was just all around getting everyone comfortable with the idea of me doing my own book, I guess. But uh, it sounds like, you know, I know it actually went better than I thought, and things seem to go pretty well, so hopefully they'll all be happy too. And so I had that experience of just being alone in a booth for hours and hours on end. Was it tiring, taxing? Actually, it it kind of went all right. I mean, there is a, it is a lot of focus. And so definitely the half days make a lot of sense because I did always feel like that last, you know, 20 minutes to half an hour, you start, you know, the mind starts wandering or harder to kind of wrap your head and lips around particular things. I, I think it, it usually, I felt like it started always a bit, 
you know, a few fluffs as you get rolling and then you find this flow for a couple of hours and then things start to fall apart because it's a long time, yeah, to be in a little dark room focusing on reading and speaking at the same time. I can understand why the half days are done. A full day of it would just be a mess. Um, but it, it was really kind of enjoyable, really. And, you know, having been writing novels for a couple of years now, uh, I'm used to sitting in a little room on my own, <laughs> you know, quite a bit. So, you know, the, the, yeah, it wasn't too bad. And how did you find and place the character voices? It, it is interesting because I have my own versions of these characters and the voices in my head. When I say it out loud, just to see the rhythm of the lines, uh, how much it lifts off the page, I think coming from an acting background, it really needs to feel like it's easy to be said and that it can be lifted off the page. That said, an audiobook is kind of different and it does need to be, I think for me it was getting my head around the fact that this is me telling the story, not me performing all these characters. And there is a little bit of a difference in uh, the clarity, I think, that you want. And there's kind of a different intention there in some ways. I had to adjust things a little bit, I think, from some of the characters. Even Fetch himself, when we first did the demo, kind of sat him down a bit more. You know, he's a kind of like heavy drinking, world-weary, self-loathing, private eye character. In the sort of traditional sort of California, noir sort of... Exactly. Hammett, Raymond Chandler. That's it. Yeah. It, it. It's taking one of those, exactly, yeah, so either a Philip Marlowe, Sam Spade kind of character, but taking that character but dropping him right down into self-loathing in even a different way that fetches some real problems that he's sorting through. So I think I picture him more, you know, if you're going to do him really authentically, I think he'd really be a little bit gruffer, a bit slower, a bit more lethargic, but you go too far in that direction and we don't deliver the story to anyone. So yes. there was a bit of lifting him up and and changing him a bit, I guess, from how my internal voice for him really is. Yes, there's, there's that fine line, you know, like the self-loathing and stuff, but you don't want the audience to loathe him because if they loathe him, they don't want to hear his story. So That's exactly it. And, the, and the, I mean, this book is very much a balancing act of that and this character overall is very much, he's learning to get to the point where he can actually start of being used to this broken world. So he's not beginning the book, you know, running out the door to go and save the world and Mm -hmm. do the right thing. But that said, you need to feel that like, okay, this is someone that we want them to do better. We want we want them to get their shit together. Yeah. Yeah, While still and you're not going to get that if he's too lethargic and useless, but at the same time, if he's too far the other way, then there's not going to be much of a journey. So there is definitely a balancing act on that side of things. Because there is that thing, I don't know if you've ever listened to when Bukowski reads his own poetry. Yes, I have heard it. Yeah, some of his poetry, like when I was first reading, you know, kind of give it a muscularity and you lift it off the page. And then you listen to his kind of alcoholic drawl that it goes with. And it was a bit of that of going, I think Fetch would probably be a bit more like that, (laughs) like a bit lazier, a bit of that kind of just trailing away at the end of a sentence. But you listen to, you know, eight to ten hours of that and you'll go insane. (laughs) Now, as you said, you do listen to a lot of audiobooks. So as a consumer, what do you look for in a reading? I guess it's different every time and it very much changes probably by genre and... um, yeah, and, and character, like, I mean, my favourite is uh, Joe Abercrombie's books read by this guy, uh, Stephen Pacey, and, I mean, that really is a performance. It actually blows my mind. Is Even if I'm listening to it and I try and think of all these characters coming out of one guy's mouth, 
I actually can't make sense of it in my head because uh, they're all so fully realised and just so specific as far as the accents he's drawn from and the kind of characters, and I, and I love that. That said, it is, that isn't required, I think, for every kind of book. You know, sometimes it, you do want to feel more like this is one person telling you a story, giving you a bit of different inflection depending on what's happening. Yep. This year I was listening to some of the old kind of more like horror classics like uh, Jekyll and Hyde and, uh, and Frankenstein. And with some of them, you feel like you almost don't want too much of that big performance. You know, you, you want to feel a, maybe a bit more of what feels like the author's voice coming through. Especially, you know, with things where you, it feels more like you're hearing it from one character's point of view, mm. as opposed to something like big fantasy books where you're cutting to different points of view all the time and you really want to differentiate between those characters really specifically. And do you have an opinion on other author narrators you may have listened to? Yeah. Because um, you know it's a vexed subject in the industry to I, some degree. <laughs> I'm starting to learn about that. Everyone's been asking me, am I going to do my own audiobook, and lots of other people listen to audiobooks saying that they really love it when the author does. Then I've heard other people as well who are like, you know, sometimes they, you know, were really excited to hear something and then it was read by the author. It, yeah, it didn't quite feel like the right performance and they found it distracting. So I know it does go both ways. When I generally pick an audiobook, often you listen to that first sample and it's probably a lot of taste whether you go, does this voice resonate with you or not? And so I haven't really compared enough between, but I feel like some people, I think for me, I know that no one will ever read this book as many times as I've read it. And I will never (laughs) read another book as many times as I've read this one. So it did cut through a lot where I knew how things would play out. I had an idea of how we might want to feel about characters at the beginning before certain reveals happen. I know the rhythm I'm writing in, Mm. and it probably would have been very frustrating for me if someone else had done it, the broader different rhythm to fetch. Yep. I'd say as well, there is, like all performance, at some point you need to let loose and go with the flow of it. And I think that's probably where you can get into trouble as an author, narrator, is if you get too stuck into what you think it should be rather than letting, you know, the story and your voice merging in their own way and having their own life that might do things in a bit of an unexpected way. It's probably fair to say, though, that there aren't many author narrators where the author is an actor as well as an author. So let's talk about your journey through that. So I've been a professional actor you know, came out of drama school, went to Whopper in 2006. So, yeah, been a professional actor for a while, working on theatre as well as in, you know, film and TV. But for me, it's always kind of been the same thing. When I grew up, I think I was more of a writer than an actor. But what started happening is that I'd write performance pieces and then be in them. I think when you're young and you're acting, there are lots of opportunities so people will ask, often come like, oh, do you want to be in this? You should come audition for that. More so than anyone asks you to go like, hey, can you go sit in a room for a little while on your <laughs> own and write something? And so I did a little bit of that on my own. But at the same time, when you've got a choice between like sitting there and, which, which happens sometimes, like, you know, when you write a play and then are in it, and you go like, okay, writing a play was all right, and that was me in my own. But then doing the play, which is having this great social group, you know, this time in your life where you just want to meet people and get out there and have fun, I think I realized that acting was a bit of a young man's game. So, yeah, so then when I finished high school, I got into a writing course and a filmmaking course and Whopper. And so that's when I made the choice when I went, okay, maybe let's do acting. 
And I think I'll be a better writer through life experience as well as, you know, getting to work in the arts and getting to be an actor in this way. So it was a little bit of a conscious choice to focus on acting first with always a feeling that I was probably going to come back to writing at some point. It almost played out on like a little 10-year plan, which <laughs> I, I'm not much of a planner, so I, I didn't and really had it set that way, but it, things have started to fall into place in a way that like maybe I had an idea about what I was doing. <laughs> And look, it's often been the case in my experience that actors end up acting because of that love of the word. Yes. And I think cause that's where it is all the same thing, I think. My favourite bit of acting often is before you have to actually do it. It's the reading it and pulling it apart and talking with the both with the director and the other actors or the writer if you're lucky enough to be working on something where the writer's still involved. That creative back and forth, you create this thing together. So... I think I always struggle a little bit with the moment where you talk about, oh, that's really exciting, that'd be amazing, and it's like, oh, now I've got to do, do it. it. <laughs> yeah, like, and sometimes that can be great, but sometimes that feels like, uh, yeah, like the, the work that happens after the really fun stuff. Like I was always a bit of a reader, but I think doing drama school is really great for being exposed to a bunch of different plays and scripts and writers and, you know, we do things where you're just reading a lot of poetry and learning how to perform poetry and mm. all those kinds of things. So in a way you actually get to experience language differently to someone who maybe you do a writing course and you focus on the word on the page and how to write, I think you do learn a lot by having it come out, you know, by, having, by understanding what good writing is, not just by analysing it on the page but by having to speak it all the time. Yes. You get really aware of what works and what doesn't and what feels natural and what doesn't when you're the one that has to get up there and sell it at the end of the day. And you've already made reference to the fact that as you were writing this book over a period of several years, you articulated it aloud to yourself on and on and on just to make sure you had, you know, all that stuff falling into place. Yeah, that's always my litmus test with things. Like I'm doing the copy edit of the sequel to The Last Mile in Sunder City at the moment and that's an interesting point because it's where sometimes another editor's changing a word or putting a comma in a different place and I know a bit about grammar and a bit writing and I seem to be doing all right, but for me my test about whether that works is always say it out loud and sometimes, you know, I'm able to make that call and go like, I know grammatically... That might be, that might make more sense, but for flow, if you lift, yeah, it's all about how it resonates as almost a bit, as a bit of dialogue for me. And look, this book, you know, I'm probably not a consumer of this genre, but listening to you read it, and this goes for many books I do, I may not be the target demographic or it may not be my genre, but if the prose is elegant, I enjoy it. And that was the case with this. You know, I could just enjoy the wordplay and little subtle jokes and things like that. It was a really lovely experience. Oh, thank you. That's really good to hear. I think that very much comes from, and it's not exactly the style of Chandler, but I remember having that feeling as well when I first started reading those Raymond Chandler books. And it's amazing to have a a kind of what who we think of as the like the hard-boiled detective and this kind of man's man who just has some of the most beautiful romantic language thrown in there. Yes. It was one of the things work this show, Black Sales, I worked on. There were still pieces of that show that I remember off by heart as just these incredible little bits of poetry and dialogue. And it's not maybe not always realistic. It's maybe not, you know, and sometimes that's it in drama where you go like, it's not how we, sometimes you don't want to write how we speak, but how we wish we could. And if we yes, can be a little, a little bit, bit more elegant and a little bit more yes. poetic, as long as the intentions are true, 
you know, why not make it all sound a little sweeter? Yep. But I've been really lucky as an actor to work with writers who go like, okay, but what can it be? Mm. And how can we enrich each moment with beautiful language? So, yeah, I think it's always more fun and it does lift everyone's game if, if you begin with writing like that. Mm. Yeah. So what would your advice be to a writer to write elegant, beautiful dialogue? <laughs> Look, to, I to do, say it out I loud I think to themselves. say it out loud yeah. is exactly it. Yeah. That is, and also stops you from getting too flowery because I think you... Yes, if you, if, I've heard, certainly heard plenty of purple prose too that I think yeah. really you should have... That's it. And I think you know that when you say it out loud. If, you, if your sentence is getting... You know, it was something that uh, Leith McPherson, who you've had in here, in my mind, I'm remembering her saying it, every breath is a thought when you're acting. Yes. So you, if you know the thought you're going to say, you will take a breath that will last for that thought. And so there is something when you read, if you're saying it out loud and you either start losing breath halfway through or you realise your breath is going out of time with what you've got to say, it might be a sign that your writing is actually getting ahead of the thoughts of the character. Saying it out loud will say so much about whether you're doing too much or too little. Mixing up like the comma into the semicolon or all those things because the thought feel garbled, I think your eye can scan over it in ways that sometimes your voice will catch. Yeah, I think that's sometimes an issue here in the booth with audiobooks because the writer has written it on the page and perhaps not read it aloud and perhaps not intended that anyone will ever read it aloud, that they've read it on the page and the eye can sort of pass the sentence for you. But sometimes when the performer comes to do it in here, we have to stop and go, okay, what's this sentence trying to say? Where should the stress be? Where should the breaths be? And we have to do that work to make it sound natural and, you know, flowing to the ear. Absolutely. And if it's meant to feel like somebody's talking to you through this book and you stop feeling like this could actually be anyone's voice and the thoughts aren't leading onto each other in a way that feels natural, then I think it could be harder for you to really go on that journey and give yourself over to the world and the character. Hey, we should let our listeners have a listen to you reading some of that book. All right, here we go. We didn't bother with the medical centre. It would be bloated and busy with cases more severe than Sims's snapped ankle. I needed a drink, and Sims wanted a place to wait for someone with a healing kit. Since she was down a leg and on my back, I got to choose the spot. Of course, I picked the ditch. But not just because it was home. There weren't many other joints that would welcome the rank odor of sweat and sludge we dragged with us. The sun waltzed back into the sky, sparkling like it was trying to make it up to us. I left the grumbling detective outside and returned with three wooden chairs. Expecting a guest, she asked. I dropped two of the chairs against the wall and one out towards the street. For your busted foot, take a perch and I'll get the drinks. She lowered herself onto the chair and I didn't offend her by trying to help. What's your poison, detective? She let the pain seep out of her voice before responding. A pint of whatever's cold, dark, and clouds my judgment. Damn it, Sims actually made me smile. Sunder wasn't usually the kind of place where you drank outside. The coastal towns out east loved their out-the-back beer gardens and sea-view rooftops. In Sunder, you stayed inside with your back to the wall and your wits about you. There was something kind of cheeky about a reptilian cop and a man for hire splayed out on the sidewalk sinking jars in the sun. I lost count of the glasses, but I could tell the time by how hard the mud was on my clothes. When I bent my knees, I thought my trousers might shatter into pieces. Sims had a cold bucket of water beside her. Every few minutes, she would dip in a hand towel and spread it over her head. The sun was welcome, but it wasn't great for that cracked and damaged dome. 
We passed jibes and dry jokes and the occasional veiled compliment over the climbing pile of empty pint glasses, but mostly we sat in silence. For soldiers, it's a familiar ritual. You have to be there for each other in those terrible times, after the adrenaline drains away and the hard questions slide in to fill the space. Nobody should be alone when those questions come calling. Did I do the right thing? Did I give enough of myself? Would somebody else still be alive if I'd done things differently? When you're stuck asking yourself those kinds of things, company is key. But don't be fooled into thinking those questions can be talked away. Try to cover them with conversation, or just come back later when you're alone and vulnerable to the voices. The only solution is to sit in silence for a while and chew on the thoughts till they're soft enough to swallow, then make sure you have something mean to wash them down with. Keep watch on your partner. If you see them start to struggle, be ready. Sometimes the questions dig a little too deep. It's not hard to notice. The brow gets too furrowed or they pick at their coaster. If that happens, just say whatever dumb thing comes into your head to save them. A sick joke, quick chat, and back to tackle the questions again. So what was your favourite part of the book to narrate? So in this book, it's a kind of urban environment but set in a fantasy world where now the magic has died. Uh, so there's a scene where Fetch goes to what is the old governor's mansion, which is now abandoned, except for the kind of preserved body of someone from his past. And it's kind of my favourite little bit of writing. And so I thought that would be the most fun just because I know it quite well. It's usually the bit that I'll show people if I'm giving them an idea of what I've written. But I think then it really was a bit more of the back and forth and bringing in some of the other characters. Mm. Uh, there's a couple of scenes, like there's one where someone breaks into Fetch's office slash apartment at night and uh, kind of threatens him to stop, you know, one of those typical... I really enjoyed scenes. that. Yeah, <laughs> him just saying like, hey, you know, stop the case. And yeah. Fetch has just been beaten up, so he doesn't want to, you know, take any shit from this stranger. So that one, because Fetch is so down on himself all, all the time and kind of struggling, those moments where he really had someone to rub against and a bit of grit, I think, were the most fun. And just having that rhythm of bouncing back and forth between the voices, I was kind of nervous about, but somehow in the performing of it, it, it seemed to flow and it was good fun. Yeah, because that can be something that people find challenging, going back and forth and placing those voices. We've had conversation like this with other people in here before. Then when you're dropping out for dialogue tags, he said, she said, that can add to that. What I did find as well is the more different the two voices, the easier it was. Uh, so in most of what I did with this is that the humans in the world have an American accent and most of the other magical creatures have either an English or European accent. But when I had to fetch speaking to another American, mm. so there was only a slight change that was a bit more tough and it's usually where I'd stop and catch myself and have to try and make sure there was enough differentiation. So how do you think you'd go reading someone else's book now that you've read yours? If we said, Luke, next week, can you come in and read this book by Joe Blow? How do you think you'd go about preparing and how do you think you'd feel? It's good saying this out loud, actually, because I'd like to think that I'd take it as seriously as I did my own, which is I did sure. really nothing else that week. You know, I made a real point of not you know, committing to any dinners or drinks or anything that would kind of tie me out both focus-wise and vocally for the job I had to do, um, which I think was a real big thing. So, because it is, little things could really throw you off. And if you've just had that one glass of wine too many or been talking, you know, in some loud place the night before, when, you know, you're as close to a mic like this, those things can be picked up. But it could go either way, I think, Um I'd be very keen to do more, but, and it would be interesting for me to see in myself whether there's a little bit more freedom 
you know, and playfulness knowing it isn't mine, you know, with a little bit of my, it's different when, you know, because I've written a second book now and got ideas for more, that every little thing you do, some part of my mind is tracking this with the overall story, where it could be really nice to take someone else's story, read it as a reader, and then just have fun bringing that to life. Luke, it's been lovely to have you back in the booth again, joining you this time instead of being on the other side of the glass to have this conversation. It's been so great uh, having you in here after being in the little room on my own for so long, but it's been a joy to yeah record the book with you and have this chat, so thanks so much. Cheers. And if you were interested in what Luke said about the talented and very prolific British audiobook narrator Stephen Pacey, you might like to visit his website. That's Stephen with a V, Pacey, P-A-C-E-Y dot com, where on the audiobook page you'll find a great interview with Stephen about his approach to audiobooks. You've been listening to the Audiobook Podcast, brought to you by Square Sound. If there's something that we haven't covered in our audiobook series that you'd like to know about, send us a message at studio.squaresound.com.au. The audiobook podcast was produced by Marianne Plaza together with Abby Holmes and Justine Sloan-Lees. With special thanks to all our guest speakers, Square Sound is an audiobook and podcast studio in Melbourne, Australia. Thanks for listening.